You're listening to Different Things Can Be Sad. Welcome to Different Things Can Be Sad, where it's cool to care about politics and pop culture. I'm Yasmin Lomax. And I'm Micah Hunt. And we are your hosts of this monthly politics and pop culture podcast. Yay! Cue the tinned applause. (laughs) I actually don't know if we have the capability to do that, so we probably won't. Um, But we are going to be starting this episode, as we do with every episode, where we talk about our months. So, Micah, could you please tell me how your November 2020 was? Uh, The only thing I can think that happened was the election i feel that i feel that was dread and then complete euphoria followed by absolute nihilism about the world so here we are still in the nihilistic phase it's okay Uh uh-huh we we continue yeah yeah it feels that feels like that was a strange time it like took up so much of our lives for yeah a good week or so there um the celebrations were fun we had a crazy time in new york everyone was like dancing in the streets and stuff yeah, i'm and incredibly jealous that i missed that it was awesome like i found out that biden won i was like making my eggs and i heard like screaming and cheering from the buildings around me so i went to the window and checked the internet and yeah it it, it was true it was true so that was that was a good day um but yeah i really can't think of a lot that's happened since then which is a little concerning. I went to Central Park my first time since the pandemic, so that was nice, nice. to just see the the crunchy, crunchy leaves. Um, but yeah, pretty pretty quiet month, which I hope means you've had plenty of time to read, watch, and listen to things. Oh boy, have I! Yeah. Okay, let's do reading first. What have you read? Yeah. Um, I read uh, two audiobooks this month. Um, the first one um, is called "Nobody Will Tell You This by Me But Me" by Bess Kelb. Um, and it's the memoir, a memoir told from the perspective of Bess's grandmother, who in the first chapter you find out has died. So it's kind of this retrospective um, story told from the perspective of her grandmother, which makes it really interesting. So it's an intergenerational story, which starts off in a small Russian village right after the pogroms to um, Bess Kalb, who now writes for Jimmy Kimmel. Oh, cool. Um, and so this spans over five generations. Um, I... I read this book because I follow Bess on Twitter and she's fantastic on there. She's really, really funny. Um, and she has a baby who is incredibly cute. Um, the book is also cute. It's really funny, but also sad. Um, I really like, I, I've, I'm a sucker for like intergenerational memoir type things. Yeah, I feel like so I've heard of, this before. Maybe not, even just like fiction books that have been a bit intergenerational. Yes. Even um, always love those. So I read that. And then, actually before that, um, I read, I continued our theme of reading books written by YouTubers or internet people. And I read um, Again by But Better by Chris. Christine Riccio. She never says her name in videos. I assume that's how you pronounce her last name. What's her YouTube name? Her YouTube name is Poland Banana Books. (laughs) It's like there's a number. Um, Okay. And Christine is actually one of the founding members of BookTube, which is the book community on YouTube. Um, They read a lot of way. Back in the day, they were like the typical like book tags of like, what are you going to read? What, who would you date from books? Like, right, right. Classic YouTube. Um, 
And on her channel, she actually chronicled the whole writing process of this book, which was really interesting to follow. She um, had writing playlists that she posted on Spotify. Cool. Um, I like that. Yeah. She's a huge Taylor Swift fan. So there's a lot of Taylor Swift in there. Um, the plot of the book um, is about Shane, who is going on exchange in London to kind of have a redo of her university experience. Um, is Shane from the U.S.? Yes. So she goes to school in New York and decides to go to London for a semester. Okay. Um, and she's pre-med in New York, but lies to her parents and does a writing program, creative writing program in London. <gasps> That's um, cool. Yeah. So she goes, she's looking to like find adventure, hopefully find love. Um, and there's also a little bit of magical realism plopped in there which you don't really discover until like halfway through the book and then it's it's a lot of magical realism um so i don't know how i feel about this book it was very much like i needed to turn off my brain and i needed a distraction from the world and it was perfect for that um i listened to it and i think that is the best way to consume this book because you have to suspend your disbelief and just go along for the ride. And I think if you're reading, if you're like physically reading it and you have to turn the page every time, you like don't like go along for the ride. Right. I say this because after like I added it to my Goodreads, as I do, um, and the Goodreads reviews were incredibly mixed, like either one star or five star. There was really no in between. I think that's um, like quite... So, like, that sounds like a similar story to a lot of booktuber, YouTuber books. Uh, I mean, with the exception being, like, Hank Green, because I feel like he's sort of a legitimate He's a, he's a fantastic writer. Yeah, whereas, yeah. like, a lot of the ones that are sort of younger people who've decided to have a go at especially this kind of magic realism stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, my experience at reading books by those kind of YouTubers has not been good, and... Same thing I've seen on on Goodreads where it's been like the mega fans are like, this is amazing. It was so much fun. And then people who maybe didn't actually follow them that closely and wanted a good book were like, this yeah. is not bad. The biggest criticism I saw of this book was that it was just the author like inserting herself into it. Um, mm. So maybe that's better. Like I haven't really followed her in years. Um, What's like, an example up. of that? If just um, so if her, you know from her personal life or? So the... Shane in the book has a blog called French Watermelon 19. Okay, right. So it's like the same. Stuff like yeah. that. And like Christine also went to London for her study abroad. Um, oh, the book is, you know, books that are set like in the past, like recent past of this book set in like 2008 um, have um, like references to like cemented in its time. But like this is like intense references. Um, do you mind being spoiled for what happens in this book? I don't think you would want to read it. Okay, yes. Yeah, spoiler for me. Um, everybody and just skip ahead like 30 ahead. seconds. Yeah. Um, because there's something that bugged me so much. So the point of the, the magical realism is that they like, she falls for this guy and it doesn't work out. So she goes back home and then like becomes a doctor and all of that. And then she realizes, wait, I do like this guy. So goes back to see him. This is like eight years after study abroad. And then they get stuck in an elevator and then they go back in time together back to study abroad. So it's eight years oh, later. Oh, that's frustrating. And so I was listening to it and I was really like going along for the ride and I was like, cool, 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 whatever. And then I realized that they were back in like 2008, 2010. 
but had been in 2017 and didn't go back and like do something about Donald Trump. Like now that didn't even cross their mind. And then the book got ruined for me because it was like, you could prevent so much suffering. Yeah. You're just going to fix your own life. Yeah. Yeah. I've always... I've always had a little bit of a time travel problem with books and stuff. Like I've said this about Prisoner of Azkaban. I, think, I, I, know, I know no one else agrees, but to me it always seems so like when they start redoing stuff, I'm like, well, why did I bother just reading that? Why did I bother just reading that if you're just going to redo the whole thing again? Like yes. really frustrating. Yes, you would me. not like this yeah. because of that. Like, I have it's a very- real problem with that. I just It really gets under my skin and I know everyone else is like kind of fine with it. But for me, I'm just – very annoyed when I feel like I've wasted my time on something that's just going to be like hashed over again. Yeah. Well, that's why it's called Again, but better. Okay. Again, mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Better. Okay. So yeah, I would have I would have got my clue from from the onset there. Yeah. yeah so, anyways, onset. that was my like, oh my god, how did you not go and prevent the suffering? Uh- <laughs> or at least just acknowledge it. Like at least have some sort of a thing of like, oh, we cannot because of this time bendy rule. You know, I would kind of be like, you know, like, just there's so many ways you could prevent that that mm-hmm. didn't require breaking the law or anything, and like, would just do it. <sighs> sigh, 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 sigh. Oh well. Um, so audiobooks this month has that been kind of your trick to keep reading while yes. being in a study hall? For sure, I've read like many physical books for school, but. This is how I read for myself. Well, there you go, guys. There's a there's a good little tip from Micah. Um, I'm also going to give you a good little tip of a book <laughs> that I've been telling everyone to read. Um, my poor boyfriend has had to listen to the plot of this like seven times because I'm so excited by it. So <laughs> I just like, bring it up all the time. And I'm just like, oh, in my in my new favorite book, um, actually something very similar happened. I talk about it all the time. Um, it is called Beach Read by Emily Henry. And I did say last episode that a new book had made it to my top five of 2020. And now this is definitely another one. It's just like a gorgeously adorable book about a romance writer named January Andrews who has to spend the summer living in a beach house in like rural Michigan uh, in an attempt to finish her latest novel. And it turns out that the house next door belongs to Augustus Everett, who is her old college rival and is now an acclaimed literary fiction author. And the two of them strike a deal where they swap genres for their latest projects. And hilarity and cuteness and romance ensue. Um, I think I love this so much because it just, I mean, even the way I, I described it there, it just has the exact beats of like a perfect rom-com mm-hmm. setup. You know, everyone always says that the golden age of rom-coms is over. And, you know, there's a few exceptions every now and then. You've got Crazy Stupid Love or Set It Up. Um, and this very much feels like the book version of that. It just hits all those notes perfectly. And it also has the right amount of depth and darkness. And because they are both writers, it can be very self-aware of the tropes of those genres. But then it's sort of... I think like subverts but embraces them at the same time so for people who are a fan of rom-coms and romance books it's like reading the perfect one it's just like Mm -hmm. a recipe of it um that's you know not cruel to the genre or anything it's really like celebratory of it um and just really really fun and really adorable so I've been 
I've been obsessed with Beach Read. I absolutely adore it. So big recommend on that. I definitely need to read that over winter break. Yeah, I'd heard like really good things about it. Um, Earlier this year, I'd seen a lot of people reading it. And then I finally got it. Actually, this one was an audiobook as well, and I quite liked it as an audiobook. So mm-hmm. I, I would recommend it. Um, I, I think, sped through it in like two days. Uh, nice. I just absolutely adored it. So definitely recommend that one. Uh, what about watching? Have you watched anything fun, Micah? I have watched many things. Um, but the thing I'd love to talk to all of you about is Dawson's Creek. Oh, your so. little horny obsession? Not that, it's, really not that it makes you horny, that sounds bad, but that... Um, yeah, they are, like they are teenagers. Yeah. Um, yes. So, Dawson's Creek. For those who are our age and younger who do not know about Dawson's Creek, um, it's a cheesy teen drama from the 90s, um, which just appeared on Canadian Netflix recently, or at least was pushed upon me by Canadian Netflix. So, setup of the first episode. Dawson is a Steven Spielberg-obsessed teen who is starting to fall for the girl next door, Jen, and okay. his childhood best friend. Could you tell me who plays each of these characters? Because I've seen, like, the... Oh, yes. Um, Dawson is played by James Vanderbeek. That's the one um, who cries in that, in that meme. Yes, I just watched that episode, and oh, the meme, fun. it was great. That's um, And then Jen is played by... Michelle Williams? Or the one who looks like the the American one. There's two. They look exactly the same. Michelle Williams. Yeah, yeah. Um, Joey's played by... Katie Holmes. She's just Joey. Katie Holmes, yes. And then there's Pacey. Pacey um, is my favorite on the show. Um, I just as a spoiler. Yeah, I, I've heard but, good things about him. He's played by yeah, Joshua, Joshua Jackson. Jackson. Yeah, he's quite famous. I he feel doesn't like feel like person. as big a thing as okay, yeah. like Katie Holmes. Oh, he was in Little Fires Everywhere just oh, a yeah. year. Yeah, he, he was. Yeah. Anyways, Dawson's Creek. Um, Sorry, it's very. Um, the, the so Pacey to clarify what Pacey's doing in this first episode. There's this love triangle happening with Dawson, Jen, and Joey, and yeah. Pacey is has feelings which seem to be reciprocated for his hot teacher. Um, so there's a teacher-student plot, Riverdale very much so. Um, I assume Riverdale was, like, emulating Dawson's Creek. Oh, they did for sure. Thing. But, like, fourth season, we'll do, like, Twin Peaks cross Dawson's yes. Creek. Also, is Fizzy um, Phillips in this? Yes, but I haven't gotten to that season yet. Oh, it's later. Okay. I know she will be eventually. Right. Um, and it's great. It's very sexually charged for a teen show from the 90s which i was right. not expecting i don't know why um it gets like less so as the seasons go on it's really interesting um and it's like drama but it's also really sweet and fun um it's perfect to get your mind off of the world um i need to find someone who actually watches it so we can chat about i will do it for you my i will do it for you i'll do it for you oh, good i'm very happy for you and dawson yeah. Or or Pacey, sorry. I I, yeah, Pacey. I'm definitely a Pacey fan and not a yeah. Dawson fan. Dawson is really just go cry. Awesome. Just go cry, Dawson. Yeah. 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 Hmm. <laughs> um, I didn't do like a ton of watching this month. I think in terms of series, um, I've just started one yesterday, so I will have reports in December. I'm not going to give anything away at the moment, but... Um, I have started watching 
the Netflix holiday movies. I love them. I They're just very good. love a cheesy a cheesy Netflix movies, and I think they do the the Christmas ones best. Um, so for my first one of the season, I watched The Holiday. Um, I've seen this too. Okay, great, great. Okay. Um, so yeah, if anyone doesn't know what it's about, it uh, stars Emma Roberts and an Australian man who is in the Point Break remake and also in Little Fires Everywhere. Interesting. Um, and she is like the single girl of her family and her family are all like, you need to get a date, like find your husband. And he's an Australian in the US who, you know, when people have like these family occasions, doesn't really have somebody to spend them with. And when he does spend them with someone he's dating at that time, it kind of makes the relationship really serious and weird. So they kind of hatch up this plan where they'll spend like a year spending holidays with each other so that, you know, both of them get something out of it. And to use the same expression that I used for uh, the beach read is that hilarity and romance ensue. (laughs) Uh, Also a bit like beach read, this one aims to recognize the cliches of the rom-com genre and subvert them, but it kind of didn't land in the same way. Like there was a bit of referencing of... They kept mentioning Ryan Gosling and then there was a scene where they were talking about the dirty dancing lift and I was like, is this, are you doing a crazy stupid love? But it wasn't clear enough that they were doing a crazy stupid love. And then, yeah, it was just, it didn't land quite right like that. But I did find that it had some really funny jokes and moments. That dirty dancing lift actually I think is my favorite moment of of the movie. Um, And for me, it was kind of cool to see a cheesy Netflix movie that actually felt like more grown up and sexy than the very um almost like platonic norm where they just like kiss at the end and you're like mm-hmm. oh, okay um yeah when I went to watch it for the second time with my roommates they were like oh a cheesy Netflix movie and I was like oh no this is like a real movie like this would probably have been at the, the like the cinema if it wasn't 2020 it feels a world away from something like you know the princess switch which i will be watching again after we finish recording today <laughs> or you know a christmas prince or something it's a little bit more legitimate a little bit more grown up um mm-hmm. a little bit more outside of that typical netflix cheesiness what did you think of it like um i liked it i was like watching on just like a chill night yeah um it was it was cute yeah yeah it's not perfect it's like mm-hmm. it definitely feels more like a legit movie than a a Netflix one. So if the the Netflix ones like like a Christmas Prince are a little bit like sugary for you, this might be a good alternative. So yeah, I'll give it a recommend. Um, how about listening? Have you listened to anything yet? I'm assuming not Christmas songs yet. Um, no Christmas songs yet. I don't really listen to Christmas songs unless I'm like doing a Christmas activity. Yeah, like doing um, a gingerbread house. Yeah. Again, yeah. Um, but the only new music I've listened to is the new Billie Eilish song. Um, I'd to do that. It's very good. It's called Therefore okay. I Am. Um, it's already been made into a TikTok song. Um, as the kids do. It's the music video is great. It's like filmed almost one take in a mall. Oh. Um and she just like she and her brother are just very good at making music. Like they're just talented. Yeah, they've so. got it nailed. You're right. You're right. Um also good at making music. 
Phoebe Bridgers. That's what mm-hmm. I've been listening to a lot this month. I find like she's great uh, music for when you're just trying to like work. When I'm in my my deep flow at work, um, I like having her on in the background, particularly Copycat Killer, which is her latest EP, and it is essentially like orchestral versions of songs from her latest album Punisher. So if you liked that and you want to hear like more haunting versions mm-hmm. of some of the songs, this would be a recommend from me. That sounds good. Yeah, give it a go. Give it a go. Welcome to the politics corner of the podcast. Um, this month we're going to be talking about drug decriminalization. Oh, um, one. In the last um, few months, this topic has kind of been a hot topic. Um, one, because during the election that took up the entire month of November, um, Oregon voted to decriminalize drugs during the election. Um, and that meant small drug possession. I'll go into it a little bit later. Um, not all. It's not a complete free-for-all. It's also in Canadian news because Vancouver just announced um, that it wants to become the first jurisdiction in Canada to decriminalize drugs. Um, and that has been supported by an ex-health minister um, who, that's a whole other drama as why she's an ex. But maybe if you want to talk about that, tune into my exclusive Canadian-only podcast. Wait, what? I didn't know about a Canadian podcast. (laughs) It's the one I wish I hosted just to to spread the news. Just Um, talk about you've been doing a boot beavers and stuff or meese. Yeah, my co-host is like a beaver. (laughs) It's the woods beaver. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Anyways, so one reason... Um, there's been a lot of debate and kind of movement around the decriminalization of drugs is because of the pandemic we're in. Um, we've actually seen a huge rise in overdoses, um, partially because people are isolated at home and partially because prevention and risk minimization has been really difficult. So like um, safe injection sites have been um, closed a lot during the pandemic. Um, also, um, clean medicine dis- or clean distribution. Um, so like a lot of the reasons for overdoses, at least in Canada, is because we have a lot of spiked fentanyl in the market. Oh. Um, and so the kind of we've been building up these ways to prevent that from getting out into the public, like badly, but have been trying to. And then the pandemic kind of ruined all of that progress. Mm-hmm. So in BC, actually, I don't know, because we've had huge increases in COVID cases, but at one point in BC, more people had died of drug overdoses than they had of coronavirus. Right. Um, which kind of puts it into perspective. So drug criminal- decriminalization is kind of this, what seems to be a radical approach to stop this worrying trend of um, increasing overdoses and just increasing drug use in general. So what is drug t- decriminalization? Um, it's pretty self-explanatory. It's the decriminalization of drugs. Um, and so basically, if um, like in Oregon, what will happen is it won't be it'll it'll be legal to use and possess drugs in small amounts. Um, it also legalizes the or decriminalizes is a more accurate term um, the use and owning of drug paraphernalia like syringes. And it also um, decriminalizes low-level drug sales. So 
you can't, it doesn't decriminalize like large amounts of drugs. Like you can't be a drug trafficker. Um, but the whole point is to decrease punishment of the people who are suffering from addiction. Okay. Um, so this like feels like a huge 180, right? Um, in the 80s and 90s, in the U.S. especially, we saw, saw the war on drugs. Um, and we saw this in other nations as well, to a lesser extent. Um, and basically, the war on drugs created these huge punishments for people who bought and sold drugs. And a lot of this was not just for... So in Oregon, marijuana has been legal for quite a while now. And this decriminalization is of hard drugs cocaine, methamphetamines, those kind of things. Um, and so, but on the war on drugs, like all of these things were incredibly criminalized. And what we know is that this led to mass incarceration and disproportionately this affected people of color, specifically black men. And then in the last 10, 20 years, we've seen the outsized um, increase of more just women in general entering the prison system, but also um, Latina and Latinx peoples. Um, so we've seen this huge increase in the criminalization of drug possession and use. But as that has increased and more people have gone to jail, we've also seen a huge increase in drug overdoses and drug addiction in the U.S. and in Canada. Um, and that doesn't like that's not the purpose. The seeming purpose of the war on drugs was to keep Americans safe. Um, mm -hmm. What we know now is that maybe that wasn't ever their real intention. Yeah, the documentary, um, the Ava DuVernay one on yes. Netflix, 13th is the name of it, I think. Am I right? Yes, I think it is 13th. Um, yeah, very educational about this. Yeah. Um, so the goal of decriminalization is to kind of turn the tides. Um, so the many, many organizations around the world and in the U.S., um, are advocating for this, so different global health organizations, and then there's a drug um, policy alliance in the U.S. that is working really hard to get this turned, and they overturned the criminalization, and so they were in Oregon working on this. Um, and basically, there's a couple reasons why they say this would be a good idea. First, it's health. Um, so first and foremost, they argue that we should change our understanding of drug use from being a criminal issue to a health issue. So we should understand drug users as being, um, like having an addiction and that's a health right. issue. And so criminalizing doesn't help. Um, and so if we decriminalize it, the hope is that you reduce stigma. Um, so you help people get the help that they need. Right. Um, and it means that when they encounter the criminal justice system, if you want to call it that, they're not um, getting diverted into places that just increase the reasons why they're going to drugs in the first place. Okay. I um, mean, instead they get diverted to help, supposedly. Mm -hmm. um, the kind of more, <laughs> is it libertarian? Is it fiscally conservative? The, the appeals to certain groups is about money. Okay. So especially in the U.S., there's this argument that the government is just spending an exorbitant amount of money on the war on drugs. It's uh -huh. insane. And we've seen it increase every single year. Yeah. Um, and so if we were to decriminalize drugs, we'd be spending less money on prisons and less money on policing. Um, and that would be beneficial. Yes, that's um, right. Yeah. 
And then the other issue, obviously, is social justice. Um, we know the war on drugs disproportionately yeah. affects people of color. We know that black men are getting sent to jail at higher rates for the same crimes mm-hmm. at, than white men. Because we have these kind of sliding scales of how long they have to go to jail for. Um, and so decriminalizing drugs could lead to not the end of mass incarceration, but a really important step in that yeah. direction. Um, which we hope will happen. Um, so decriminalization, those are kind of the purported benefits. Um, and in the U.S., there are no examples of that. The biggest example that everyone points to about decriminalization is Portugal. So Portugal decriminalized drugs in 2001. Um, since then, it's had the lowest drug use rate in all of Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, its drug overdose fatality in 2001 was 80 people. Um, and now it's down to 16 in 2012. And the other big issue they were having was a rise in HIV and AIDS cases amongst drug users. And they've seen way lower rates now. Because when you're not using drugs, but also you can do them safely, you're not sharing needles. And that helps a lot. Um, But the Portugal case flags something that's really important, which is part of the politics, I think. Obviously, this is all political, but an important key part of it is that they didn't just decriminalize, they diverted money to harm reduction. So it um, meant that they put more money into drug treatment facilities. They set up like a new court-like system, which wasn't court. It was um, like you were put into a system that got you help. So they had set up this whole new system. Um, they had to change drugs from the criminal system, the ministry to the health ministry. Um, there's a lot of money. So like yeah. the money you save does go to, um, has to go somewhere and it goes right. to this health stuff. Right. Um, and it was a huge amount of time. Um, and there's kind of two reasons why people point to Portugal as being a bad example of the U.S. It might be a good example for other contexts, mm. but really the two main reasons are that, um, Portugal didn't have this kind of huge war on drugs. Um, So this shift from um, criminalization to decriminalization wasn't very extreme. Um, Which I was going to point out as, you know, when you were saying the benefits of decriminalizing drugs, I was, you know, about to ask what would be the negatives of that, right? And there is an argument that, like, immediately springs to mind of, you know, people saying drugs ruin people's lives and... Um, you know, people who deal drugs are evil and people who do drugs are evil. And I think people kind of think that the criminalizing it is an immediate band-aid to that. Like that fixes it when, mm-hmm. you know, a bit with many like health things, it, it doesn't. It just yes. forces people to do it in more unhealthy ways. But it is it does sort of like spring from that um, like national sentiment or like like yes. belief that they're evil and it can just be stopped if we yeah, have hard fans on it. I think a lot of advocates for decriminalization are people who have like intimate knowledge of yeah. what this means. Either they were drug users themselves or they lost um, friends or family. And a lot of them talk about like why they started doing drugs, 
why they were selling. So, like, one big problem was that, like, people sell to maintain their habit. Mm -hmm. And so then you get people going to jail, and it turns out a great way to get back into drugs is to go to jail where you can get them or you leave. And because of how stigmatized jail time is in the U.S., right? Um, you can't get a job. And so then what job do you do? You, like, you get depressed. You like, go back to drugs. Or what job do you do? You deal drugs. Yeah. Um, it's a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy in a way mm-hmm. of criminalization. And so I think the argument that a lot of them have is that we've seen like th- this kind of story of like the big bad drug dealer doesn't right. exist. It's mostly people who are struggling themselves, and this is the only way they can ease that struggling, which is right. So it's a shift that's going to help them rather Mm -hmm. than, yeah, turn them into a a big bad evil. And it still doesn't, if there is a big bad evil out there of, you know, a drug lord, Mm -hmm. this this doesn't apply to them. It's not. No, like, like, if you're peddling, like, kilos of cocaine, you are still like there are still criminal charges that can be brought against you. Right. Um, this is all about small level, um, like selling a gram or two yes. um, to a friend because you need the money. Right. So I can sort of, okay, so yeah, I guess to bring it back to Portugal, if you've never had this idea of like a big bad or that it's evil mm-hmm. or that, um, you know, having a war, like the word war yes. working, then it must, would be easier to do a 180 like this. Yeah, so I think that's something we talk about a lot in um, political science. The thing that I'm currently spending my life doing is how we frame um, policy issues. So how do we talk about the things that um, are important in our political lives? And in the U.S., clearly, um, we framed the drugs as a war. Like, mm-hmm. there is bad people who are coming to harm Americans. And I like we I think we see this in other countries as well. Like I think definitely like under the Harper years in Canada, we saw a similar kind of there are evil people who are doing drugs. Yeah. Um and in Portugal I don't think they had that same understanding. So it made like just doing the policy itself much easier. Right, right. Okay. Um, and more accessible. And like we saw the like the numbers of having eighty overdoses a year, like that's too many people. Mm-hmm. And like one death is too many, but like c- in comparison to like right now in BC alone, over 300 people have died of overdoses. Yeah. Like, and that's a population of 4 million people. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the numbers in the US are just staggering. Oh, um, like, like you could probably have that many in a day with like the opioid yeah. crisis, right? It's, yeah. Um, so actually, I definitely looking at a really good website that had those like statistics, and it was like since mm-hmm. you know, I one of I'll those, put like, the, the drug like this is how many people have died in the U.S. Like it's yeah. Mm-hmm. I'll put the Drug Policy Alliance. I think that's what they're called in the um, show notes because mm-hmm. they have really good resources. Yeah, but yeah, I think so. One part of it is about like Portugal didn't right. have this war. Uh-huh. Um, they also and so that meant like. Uh, as a public policy kind of thing of, like, getting people to buy into it, it was easier. But also it meant that, like, the transition of, like, how the justice system was set up was easier. The other thing that Portugal has is, a, like, national health care yeah, yeah. Um, and accessible health care. 
And the argument for decriminalization isn't that we decriminalize drugs and drug overdoses end. It's we decriminalize drugs so that people get the help that they need. But that help has to be available. So in Oregon, that was baked into this proposition that just passed, which I think was really important. Um, And that they kind of outlined that not only does it decriminalize drugs, but it puts um, onus on the government to provide services. So there has to be free... um, drug counseling um and i i don't think they were like free provision of clean drugs but if it's more about getting people um clean fully um and their goal is for that money to be taken out of the taxing of marijuana which is kind of on the back of people's minds always why um legalizing weed was a good idea um and then supposedly it's going to come out of policing so I think this is an interesting thing of like where it connects with like Black Lives Matter right, um, yeah. and the call to defund the police because part of it is that there's excessive policing specifically of drugs. So some people are saying, well, we just like won't have to spend as much on the police. Um, and other people are saying, well, no, like this would be a great opportunity to get rid of the police altogether hmm, interesting. Um, because these kind of issues are interconnected and like the reason I think a lot of people would argue the reason why we've seen the increased presence of the police is because of this criminalization of drugs. So all in all, I think decriminalization of drugs seems scary. Like it seems like this big, huge thing and it seems counterintuitive, but the ultimate goal is to make it easier to help people. And unfortunately that means you need a system that is set up to help people. Um, right so maybe if this isn't like if portugal is not the best example for the u.s it could be a good example for countries that we have lived in so like you know canada australia ireland where they haven't had a war on drugs and they have a national health system that could help support it Hmm, okay um and people are hoping that like oregon is the, is going to be this kind of test it's going to be the portugal for america interesting Um, yeah yeah that's a good point which is like what we've seen with a lot of different things, like Colorado legalizing weed fully yeah. was like this really important test case to see if it could happen everywhere else. And that's another thing we saw in this election was way more um, states legalized weed. Mm. So there's a hope that with this Oregon um, proposition that passed, that we'll see kind of a new future. And like, who knows how long it's going to take. It has the same problems as the um, weed legalization and that like federally still criminalized right um so if you get picked up by the feds you're still like you could still be prosecuted yeah so there's there's some issues with it but like it's really exciting that people might be getting the help that they need really soon that is really interesting and yeah as you mentioned with the u.s election i think it was one of the um maybe slightly underreported things but Mm -hmm. um almost like a surprising and quite a big positive that came out of it was especially even some quite conservative states voting for decriminalization in some ways. So yeah. Interesting. But like the weed decriminalization is really exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Thank you for that, Mike. I feel like I've learned a lot. So for the pop culture segment of the podcast this month, I will be talking about, the sexiest man alive. Um, so this month, People Magazine announced the winner of their annual Sexiest Man Alive 
award. I'm not going to call it a contest. Like they don't, you know, submit themselves to it. So mm-hmm. it's an award. And I will be talking about the history of the award and telling you all about this year's winner. I will not be doing an analysis of whether this is sexist or good journalism <laughs> or whether there's a place for it in 2020 because I just don't want to. I really don't want to. I just think there's bigger and more important things we can care about right now. And this should just be a little bit of fun, you know? So just to flag that at the beginning. So I guess <laughs> we'll dive in with um, what is People Magazine and what is the Sexiest Men Alive Award? So People is an American weekly magazine that's been around since 1974. Um, one of the more popular sort of like celebrity mm-hmm. mags. Um, and they have a few very popular issues every year so one of them is their 100 most beautiful people issue where they list out 100 beautiful people of the year they've recently started doing a cutest baby alive um award yeah so the winners have been uh andy cohen's baby and anderson cooper's baby so i think that's very very cute choices and i think probably most famously their sexiest man alive award um and the issue that's around that. And they've been doing that since 1985. So it's been kind of fun to, to look into that, I will say. <laughs> um, the first Sexiest Man Alive was Mel Gibson. Uh, mm. Yeah, a little problematic, would not win again. Um, George Clooney, Brad Pitt, and Richard Gere have each won twice. Nice. Which I think they're all like really good choices and I think encompass what like being the sexiest man alive is right I think they're people that stand the test of time you know that they're ones that my grandkids will probably see in like a booker on the tv and be like oh okay that's a good looking man you know they're like classically (laughs) handsome my mom thinks they're hot I think they're hot and they just have the charisma that I think is necessary to be sexy I think you can be good looking without being sexy I think these guys all have like a natural confidence um that just makes them you know really appealing so it is usually actors that that win um jfk jr and david beckham are the only non-entertainers who've won and Mm -hmm. speaking of jfk jr him patrick swayze and very recently sean connery are the only winners who have passed away since being awarded um there's a lot of sexiest men who are still alive. They're still around, you guys, you know? You can still go for them. Uh, there's one that people may not want to, and that is uh, Blake Shelton. He <laughs> was crowned Sexiest Man Alive 2017, and that probably made, like, the biggest waves for the the award in, in recent years. There was a lot of controversy around that. People did not agree with it. Uh, yeah, you'll think you want to say something. Was this... Was he with Gwen Stefani at the time? He was, yes. And he was on The Voice. So yes. people were sort of like, um, this is not even the sexiest dude who's dated Gwen Stefani. He's <laughs> not the sexiest person on The Voice. He's not the sexiest person named Blake. So that was like kind of a confusing choice. But you know what? Maybe it got them a, a, a little bit more... Um, in the forefront of people's minds because everybody still talks about that. So maybe a smart idea. I don't mm-hmm. know. So last week I started thinking about who could win in 2020 because the announcement was coming up. And 
I think when you're thinking about who's the sexiest man, you've got to think of a few different factors. So they're usually like a pretty current person, but Mm -hmm. not like a flash in the pan kind of person. So um, for example, the other people who were on the list this year were like very 2020 kind of guys, like um, the Emily in Paris hot dude, uh, Paul Mezcal from Normal People, Steve Kornacki, our uh, election map pointer. Yes. Yes. So people that everyone's been like, oh, they're amazing, but I feel like they might be, it might be a little bit early to call them the sexiest man alive. They're a little bit too current. You want it to be mm-hmm. someone a little bit more um, long ranging. And usually people don't win when they've had their biggest year, you know? In, yeah. Yeah. In I've recent, noticed that. In recent memory, like last year, we had John Legend won last year and then mm-hmm. like, Idris Elba won the year before. And I really wouldn't say that like 2018, 2019 were the biggest years for those guys or like, not really. I don't I don't think so. I think they've both had like bigger moments. So mm-hmm. I, I think maybe that kind of ties in with the whole like not being a flash in the pan. They don't want it to be someone who's too current. They want them to have like, you know, really blown yes. up and then have like stayed at the forefront of people's minds. So, um, you know, not too, too topical. Also, they sort of need to be appealing to an older audience the average reader of people is 38 years old so mm-hmm. you know someone like Noah Centineo is probably not gonna win because you know your mom will think he looks like a little boy so <laughs> it needs to be somewhere someone a, a little bit older a little bit more mature um and they also need to be fairly mainstream myself and a couple of friends had had a conversation that maybe it could be like Harry Styles this year but I think he's kind of too cool for it. Like if he's on, yeah, if he's on the cover of like Vogue as the first solo man on that wearing a skirt, I don't think he's going to be on like mm-hmm. people doing, he's too, doing his muscles, you know? He's way too cool yeah. and he's too relevant. Like this was his year if it's it was like anyone's year. Yeah, so he's discounted for relevancy, probably discounted for the age thing as well. And mm-hmm. for me, the thing that discounts on the most is that like whoever wins has to like agree to do a photo shoot with people. And yes. I, I couldn't see Harry Styles doing that right now, especially right off the back of Vogue. I just think like he's, mm-hmm. yeah, he's someone that, you know, is very quiet and private and almost has that kind of like cool elusiveness to him. Yes. And I just couldn't see this working. Uh, but this year, they did announce their winner. It is someone I very much approve of, who is very, very cool. And it is Michael B. Jordan, who I think we spoke about on the last episode yes, of this podcast. We, did. we love him. Yeah. Or like two episodes ago, we love yeah. him. Yeah, yeah. So um, Michael B. Jordan was chosen, you know, obviously he's super, super hot, but there's many a hot guy. <laughs> um, the editor-in-chief of People, Dan Wakeford, was actually asked, you know, why, why Mike, as he refers to him as, Uh, chosen for 2020 and he said every year we look at what is the spirit of the year what does the zeitgeist want at the moment and after a difficult year we wanted to find somebody who provides a balance of escapism and comfort and inspiration and we really felt like mike did that it doesn't hurt that he's extremely hot as well (laughs) Um, sort of elaborating on that he says i think people are leaning into kindness after having a difficult year and they're looking at somebody who is a force for good i think mike is that He's done lots of good things. He's put his money where his mouth is related to Black Lives Matter. His production company has led the charge to provide more career opportunities for people of color in Hollywood. And he also believes in strong women and empowering women, which is fantastic. So uh, 
I like that they had woke reasoning, you know, if you do want to talk yes. about, um, you know, this contest being vapid or, you know, useless, I kind of like that they don't just go, who's super hot. And, you know, last year people were a little bit like, why John Legend? And I actually haven't looked into why he was chosen, but I can almost mm-hmm. see now like that they've explained a rationale, you know, people like someone who likes their wife you know and is is a good dad and just like a kind lovely man and that sort of seemed you know I I could see that last last year for sure um and this year yeah to have someone who's very supportive of Black Lives Matter and um a real force for good as Dan Whiteford said I think really makes sense I'd just like to point out that he starts the quote with every year we look at what is the spirit of the year and like you could choose some real mean people to represent the like non nice spirit of twenty twenty. Yeah. Yes, that would that would make sense. That could have been a real dig if he hadn't turned it around to be about kindness. Yeah, I can I can see what he's what he's trying to say. It's like what are people looking for this yes. year? Because it's it it experiencing. Yeah, yeah. Like maybe there's a year where I don't know, everyone's just like you know what, maybe it will be more of a Harry Styles in a few years and people are ready for somebody who's, like, mm-hmm. more quirky. Like, I know we're, like, ready for it now, but maybe the mainstream will become, like, really ready for it in a couple of years. Yes. And they will feel, like, almost pressure to be, like, okay, it has to be someone who's, like, a little bit different, you know, and is not afraid to just be completely unique. So we will see. But at the moment, I would like to tell you about Michael B. Jordan, our <laughs> woke winner of 2020. Uh, He was born in California, but actually grew up in Newark, New Jersey, with his mom, his dad, and his brother, and his sister. And his career took off really, really early. He started off as a child model and then had a few small roles in The Sopranos, Hardball, and The Wire. And then in 2003, he joined the cast of All My Children, replacing Chadwick Boseman as a character named Reggie. And... uh, yeah, Chadwick Boseman actually said that he was fired from the role for speaking out against racist stereotypes in the script. So, oh. uh, yeah, really interesting point there. And, you know, the two of them later worked together in Black Panther and seemed like they had a really, really beautiful friendship until um, mm-hmm. Chadwick passed away earlier this year. And Michael B. Jordan on his Instagram has been pretty, pretty devastated about that. But it is really interesting that they've had quite a long Mm-hmm. relationship um and one that seems you know quite um fused together so for me I think that Michael B. Jordan really kicked off with Friday Night Lights yes. he um came in toward the end of the series and just had a beautiful character his name was Vince Howard he uh played for the new East Dillon team that was set up because of essentially like gerrymandering um so i think friday night lights doesn't get enough credit for being quite a political show especially mm-hmm. towards the end when they get into oh, yeah. east villain um there's a lot of really really good plots there that i think are actually handled really well and his character is just one that has a lot of heart and is sort of held up as the new star of the series he's really great and as i believe you mentioned before micah he Mm -hmm. went on to be in parenthood which was yeah so he was great there a lot of really cool series so i think he started like gathering a lot of attention in you know around 2013 he was called one to watch by a lot of 
publications and then really blew up in 2015 where he starred in um, the Rocky sequel Creed and Mm -hmm. then later on as Eric Killmonger who was the sort of villain villain Mm -hmm. had good ideas in 2018's Black Panther it was a really complex character where he was um, you know coming from a really interesting point of view and one that really about like sovereignty and obviously was just going about it the wrong way because it involved a lot of murder um but really interesting character in that and he actually has a lot of upcoming roles as well he is you know everyone's pretty excited about his role in without remorse which is a tom clancy book adaptation where he'll be playing a navy seal which i think is just kind of like the perfect role for such like a (laughs) a hot muscular man you know it seems like because he was like the skinny little kid in Friday Night Lights, right? And it's almost yes. the sort of John Krasinski thing where you're like the lovable, lanky dude, and then you just beef up, and then you have to go be a Navy SEAL. So that that makes sense. But he actually told people that he wants to act a bit less in the future and produce more. And he has his own production company called Outlier Society, and it was the first production company to adopt an inclusion writer on all its contracts which mandates that filmmakers enlist a diverse cast and crew. And that's not a recent thing. This like went back a few years ago. So, um, you know, he really, I think Black Lives Matter and giving representation to Black people in art is something that has been important to him for a long time. Um, And he has been very active in the Black Lives Matter movement on social media and attending protests this year, as well as in, you know, many of his roles. It's not a new thing to him. There's the production company, but he also played uh, police shooting victim Oscar Grant in the movie Fruitvale Station. Mm-hmm. Uh, seems like he really chooses roles that um, uplift and empower Black people. So I think he's really, really um, keeps that at the forefront of his mind and is really mm-hmm. confident about it. So it's obviously something that's very important to him and, you know, why people really wanted to celebrate him this year. Um he has also been pretty vocal about the 2020 election. He was actually doing like a a, a chat with Barack Obama and Kamala Harris um, nice. for the election and was very like, hashtag I voted, hashtag Biden Harris. He wasn't just doing a I voted, not telling you who, and then claiming the victory, which people have been pretty mad that some celebrities have been doing. Um, he was very clear about who he was voting for and who he felt was best for the U.S. at this time. Um, on maybe a more personal note, he's a very like family oriented person. It seems he Mm -hmm. bought his family a home in Sherman Oaks in California and lived with them until I think like extremely recently. So just, yeah, moved back in with his parents and had a good time with them. So they all seem to have like a very cute relationship. And he spoke about his mom and his grandma a lot in the people feature. Um, he also loves gaming. I think he is a PlayStation partner and anime as well. He loves anime. So um, I think it's kind of funny because some people have pointed out that they're not sure if he's sexy. Like he's incredibly hot, but he also just seems like the guy on like a night out that would be with the guys and they'd be like picking up girls and then he'd have to like talk to some girl while she cries about her ex-boyfriend and then would like hold back her hair um 
like vomiting in the toilet. He just has such like a nice, a nice guy persona. And he does like a few Instagram posts where he's like, I don't know, biting his lip or like posing with the cigar. And like to me, they just like never feel as authentic <laughs> when he's like, I love anime. He just seems like absolutely adorable. So mm-hmm you know what, I'm going to let him have a pass. If ever, if people don't think he's sexy, that's your problem. I, I, he's just great to me. Um, on the topic of his sexiness, he actually told Jimmy Kimmel recently that he wants to start an OnlyFans for his mustache and mm. donate the proceeds to a barber school since a lot of them have been affected uh, during COVID. And in his 73 questions with Vogue, he said that his talent is ironing. I think he's pretty good at ironing. He would love to meet Malcolm Gladwell and his favorite writer is James Baldwin. So I just think he's a really cool dude. I think a lot of people see, you know, the cute face and the muscles, but there is so much more to him. I think he does seem Mm -hmm. the kind of person that everybody wants to know and wants to be in 2020. So I am saying a big thumbs up to this year's uh, People, Sexiest Man Alive, award i think you know what they did a great job with it um and i'm giving a big thumbs up to michael b jordan not that he needs my thumbs up but you know what if he was searching for it which he's definitely not (laughs) for you michael b jordan you're hot and fabulous Alrighty, that brings us to the end of another episode of Different Things Can Be Said. Micah, what can we expect from you before we hear from you at the beginning of December, the last month of the year? Yeah. Um, Wait, no, I, not the beginning of the December, the end of December. End of December. Oh, we only have one more episode for 2020. Yeah, wow. Whoa. The year comes to an end. That is insane. Oh my gosh. Wow. And we usually do that as kind of like a roundup episode, don't we? Okay. Yeah, we have to start thinking about do we want to round up 2020? Hmm. We'll do a roundup. Bad. That's my <laughs> we're, gonna... yeah, we're done. We're done. Okay, it's done, guys. So don't worry about next episode. Uh, <laughs> we'll, yeah, we'll, 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 we'll do something special for you guys. Um, yeah, what will I be doing in December of 2020, the last month? Um, I. I'm very fortunate to be able to go home to my family um, in a long roundabout way of quarantining on the way there. Mm. Um, uh, Yeah, but it'll be really nice to see them and do a very small Christmas. Yes, Um, I'm excited about that as well. I just want to wear a Christmas sweater and watch Jack Frost. Yes, I'm really excited to have a break um, and read for myself and watch cheesy christmas movies princess switch princess switch Mm, no as as yaz and i were talking about in our break which you didn't hear we're both very excited for the new dan levy christmas movie and Kristen stewart uh what's it the happiest happiest season i think yeah something like that yeah it looks awesome i'm really excited christmas dan levy it sounds great Love it. I actually, I'm really excited about this one because it seems like one where Kristen Stewart is just like playing herself and I think she could be really good at that. I feel like we haven't got enough movies where Kristen Stewart gets to be like authentically Kristen Stewart, Mm -hmm. which is probably like pretty different. I mean, I was talking to one of my friends about it recently because, you know, she was saying maybe the last like super mainstream thing and I don't, I don't count Charlie's Angels because I don't feel like that. 
took off the way it was supposed to. But like Twilight was probably the last thing that Mm -hmm. was like super massive that she was in or like super mainstream, you know? Um, like she was saying, okay, her parents would probably have like most recently seen her in Twilight. And mm. it'd be kind of cool to see her in a movie now and just have like grown up so much in those years and like become so much more herself. So I'm excited about that. What are you up to in December? I'll be watching that. That's what I'll be doing in December. Nice. Yeah. Every day. Yeah. A lot of that. A lot of that. Doing a lot of crocheting. I have to try and get like the Christmas present sent really soon because we yes. have like a December 7th um cut off like to get they're saying like december 1st you should have ordered everything online just in case yeah i think i'm gonna have to be pretty be pretty speedy about it um yeah it's just trying to get everything wrapped and sent and get all the christmas cards written um i think i'm gonna try and still aim for december 7th the post has been like pretty quick between here and ireland um recently so i'm thinking if i can even get in like december 5th or something um we should be in a good spot it's just going to be writing all the the many many christmas cards it's going to get me but i'll aim to do that maybe maybe this weekend we'll get there we'll get there so that way my life is getting carpal (laughs) tunnel from uh writing christmas cards always a good time and from crocheting yes yes yeah it's it's going to be a hard month on these hands, but they're up for the challenge. Well, um, I guess if you want to follow our um, our very terrifying cross-country travel and <laughs> um, the workout that my hands will be under, you can do so. We will be on Instagram as at DTCBS Podcast. I am on Instagram and no longer Twitter. I'm taking a little, a little break from there. Um, I'm going to be on Instagram as at Yasmin Lomax. Um, I am on Instagram and Twitter because I can't get off um, at Micah Han. I've been doing some 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 actual tweeting Yay. all about school. So if you're okay. interested in watching me suffer, go follow her because I cannot support the tweets anymore. So I need at least one of you to like them, like every <laughs> like I would. Gotta gotta support the homies. Anyway, alrighty, we will chat to y'all in December. Bye. Bye. Thank you.